Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Hey everyone, we'll just bring it back in for a bit. Um, so I'll be reading the Bible readings today too. Um, so we've got two of them, one from Nahum and one from John. So the first one from Nahum is um, chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. And I'm reading from the ESV version, but feel free to read it in whatever version that you've got. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken, the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. And then the second reading is from John chapter 10, verse 22 to 30. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Great. Hey, sorry about the size of the text up on the screen. It really looked good on my computer. Yeah, my name's, uh, my name's Phil. <laughs> Thank you, my son, Adam. My only... My only, oh, was that, was that you, Alison? Oh, doesn't do that at home. <laughs> so good morning, everybody. Um, there's quite a few people here that I haven't seen before, so welcome, it's good to have you here. Um, you get me speaking this morning, so you might want to come back another time as well. Um, this morning we're continuing our series in the books we don't read. Um, there's lots of books in the, in the Bible. Some people don't read the Bible at all, but there are some particular books that we, we have a habit of just not reading because they're a bit odd, they're a bit weird. Um, but they are God's Word. 
So we should read them. They're the, they're the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. So guys like Jonah and Micah and Habakkuk and Obadiah and those, those sorts of fellows. Um, they're, called, they're called minor because they're short, only little books. Um, Isaiah, we would have all heard of Isaiah, 66 chapters in that book. Um, Jeremiah has 52 chapters, Ezekiel has 48 chapters. Um, so these 12 that we've been looking at are a lot shorter. Um, the one we're looking at this morning is one called Nahum. Um, that only has three chapters. So still a lot in there though. It's amazing how much the Lord has packed into to three small chapters of his, of his word. Um, it's not really a book we hear about much. It's, can I do a, a survey and it's going to embarrass everybody. Who here has read, have, has read Nahum more than twice? I didn't ask for once because you should have all read it at least once. That's good. Um, it's not one we usually go to when we pick up God's word. We don't uh, think, oh, what does the Lord want to say to me this morning? I'll go to the book of Nahum. Um, I don't think I've ever done that. But there is some pretty terrific stuff in there. And I know that there's stuff in there that he wants us to hear. So that's my job this morning is to, is to hear what God has said through Nahum and, and bring it to you folks and, so you can hear it as well. I've been very blessed as I've been doing it. Um, Nahum, actually I don't really know how to pronounce it. Every time I listen to someone, they pronounce it differently. It's Nahum or Nahum or Nahum. Um, it's actually a similar word to Noah. And it's a, it's a similar word to uh, Nehemiah. Um, it means comfort, which is interesting when you read the book. It doesn't look like there's a lot of comfort in there, but there is. Nahum's a, Nahum's a kind of a sequel to the book of Jonah um, that we looked at a few weeks ago. So most of us have heard of Jonah, the story of Jonah and the, and the great whale, or the big fish. Or, um, so Jonah was this, was this prophet of God who was sent to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh about 755 BC. This is stuff that actually happened. This is history. So he was sent to proclaim the judgment that was about to come upon Nineveh. And we know this story. Um, instead of uh, heading up to Nineveh, as God told him to, he gets on a ship and goes the other way. He gets thrown into the sea in the middle of a storm and he spends some time in the guts of a great fish and he ends up in Nineveh. And when he gets there, he preaches this beautiful, warm, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life message. And this is the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, that was it. That was the message. But Yahweh's word of judgment was enough for the people of that city, including the king. It was enough for them to repent and turn to the only true God, which is amazing. It was a great story of God's grace and mercy and the turning of the people in repentance and faith. Um, Jonah didn't like that. He wanted to see these Ninevites smitten. Now, the word smite, I'll, you don't get to use the word smite very often in real life, so I'm going to use it. Jonah wanted God to smite the Ninevites. But he didn't. They turned and they fell on their knees and repented, um, which is wonderful. All of them, every person in the city, 
turn to the Lord. Just an amazing revival in that city. Incredible. But before long, a new king arose. And new leaders arose. And a new generation of people came along. And they forgot Yahweh. And they went back to worshipping idols and false gods and turning back to their brutal ways, destroying other nations, slaughtering the innocent, and becoming more and more corrupt and evil. They repented of their repentance. They turned back from their repentance. And it was so bad, in fact, after only 30 years after that event with Jonah, they invaded, the Syrians invaded and destroyed completely the northern kingdom of Israel and sent them all into exile. And the 10 tribes of Israel that were in the north were just dispersed and not to be heard of again. That was 30 years after Jonah. They became more and more powerful. Nineveh doubled in size. And by the time of Nahum, in about 655, so about 100 years later, they were the greatest, most powerful, richest nation on the planet. They were it. Nineveh was the biggest and the greatest and the richest and, and the most powerful. No one could take them on. They conquered everyone. They swept across the Middle East. They even managed to destroy Egypt's capital city, Thebes. They were so powerful. There's no stopping them. And they were brutal. And they showed no mercy to their enemies. None. No mercy at all to those they conquered. I was going to read you some of the stuff, some of the historical stuff about it, and it's just dreadful. Absolutely horror movie stuff that these guys did to the people that they captured and they conquered. They're an evil nation. And they saw themselves as the centre of the universe. With their king, as the king of the universe. That's how they saw themselves. So where was Nineveh? It's kind of interesting. It was on the banks of the Tigris River in what's now northern Iraq. Just across the river from a place called Mosul, which you would have heard in the news in the last few years. Um, remember ISIS? They were growing and starting to spread their influence across Iraq and across the Middle East. And one of the main cities that they captured was at this place called Mosul. And they did to Mosul what the Ninevites used to do. It's interesting, it's exactly it's across the river. Same spot, same kind of stuff was happening. So it's interesting that 2,600 years after Nineveh, the same brutality and evil in the same area. It's quite awful. Anyway, so back to the book of Nahum. So Nineveh, imagine Nineveh, at the height of its power, the height of its brutality, along comes Nahum. Imagine that. Imagine poor Nahum. He tells of the anger of the Lord at their evil. Their idolatry, similar message to, to Jonah, really. His was a bit more drawn out. Um, he tells them how angry the Lord is at what they're doing. Their evil, their idolatry, their brutality. And he tells them that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was going to destroy them. But this time, there's no repentance. There's no turning to the Lord. And the vision that Nahum has of the destruction of Assyria. So he predicts it's going to happen and it happens. And it happens exactly as he prophesies. It's fascinating as you read through the book of Nahum and then get the history books, get Encyclopedia Britannica and 
all these other ones and it's, it matches exactly what happened. Um, Nahum predicted it all about 30 years or so before it happened, actually happened. But it happened exactly. So in the visions from the Lord, uh, Nahum sees the waters of the river, the mighty river Tigris, flooding the city. Now that had never happened. He sees an invading army and he sees Nineveh's complete destruction. Now that was unbelievable. That's not going to happen. Imagine, I don't know, New York City all of a sudden just being destroyed by the Canadians coming down. Do you like that, guys? Our Yankee friends? (laughs) You watch. Well, within just a few decades, about 612 BC, the Medes and the Babylonians, another great power, but um, the Assyrians had conquered them over and over again. So they, got, they kept on getting beaten down, these, the Babylonians and the Scythians and the, and, the, and the Medes. But in 612, the Medes and the Babylonians lay siege to the city of Nineveh. But they couldn't break in because of the massive walls that surrounded the city. These walls were so thick. They used to have chariot races along the top, three abreast chariot races around the wall. That was the inner wall. There was an outer wall that protected the inner wall and there was a moat. And you had the Tigris River and everything. It was just unbelievable. They couldn't break in. But they lay siege and they were there for three months. They were hoping to starve the, the Ninevites out. There's plenty of food though. They had stores, lots and lots of stores. They were incredibly wealthy. They were never going to get starved out. Well, it turns out that about three months after the siege, the Tigris River began to flood. Massive rains from upstream, like happening now in, South, in uh, New South Wales. and The water's coming down. It's going to flood Achuca and some of these other places along the river, yeah? Well, that happened three months after, um, three months into the siege. So rains came, the floods, the, the Tigris River came up, flooded through the city, and it started to undermine the walls of the city, this ma- these massive walls, and the walls began to crumble. And as the walls fell, the Babylonians and the Medes raced in, took the opportunity and destroyed the place. So there would have been two, three hundred people living there, destroyed. The king at the time took his wives and children and everything he had and set fire to themselves so they wouldn't be captured. Because they were afraid that the Babylonians and Medes would do to them what they had been doing. Anyway, the water floods the sea, the walls begin to collapse and the army swoops in, just as Nahum had said was going to happen. Amazing. The city lay desolate and just disappears into history. Over the centuries, the abandoned ruins are covered over and just get lost. And for centuries, archaeologists, they'd read about it. The Egyptians wrote about them in the the scriptures. There's lots of records of these people called the Ninevites, but they couldn't couldn't find the city anywhere. It wasn't until 1840-something that someone was... uh, going along the Tigris and they notice this mound alongside the Tigris River opposite, opposite Mosul and they thought we'll do some digging see what we can find and they slowly uncovered this massive city chariots and all sorts of stuff in there all the good stuff was taken all the gold and all the, all the wealth of the nation had been taken away just as Nahum had said but they found the city so it wasn't just a fable it actually was a real place So, the sequel to Jonah didn't end up being a good story for Assyria. Bad time to be an Assyrian. Um, Hear the last verse of Jonah. So, 
up on the screen. So I want to compare these two. It's interesting doing a bit of a comparison. These are the last verses. And they're the only two verses in the whole, sorry, they're the only places in the Bible where the last verse is a question. Just these two books of the Bible. In Jonah and Nahum, it ends in a question. So Jonah's question was, so this is God, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? I should pity them. So he's telling off Jonah for his arrogance and his hatred towards the Ninevites. God is going to pity them. It's a good note of grace and mercy. Um, they, they repented, they turned from their sin, they turned to the Lord. God showed pity on them. The last verse of Nahum is different. He says, There's no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. The nations around were being decimated by, by the Assyrians, the, by Nineveh. When they, heard of, when they were going to hear of its destruction, they were going to, Yes, Nineveh's destroyed. For upon whom has not, your un, has not come your unceasing evil. So God says, you haven't stopped. Your evil's still there. You've heard the message. Destruction's going to come. It's the opposite of Jonah. Well, that was a fun message, wasn't it? I don't want to leave it like that. Nahum brings words of God's wrath, his, his just judgment and the destruction of Nineveh, but I don't, I don't really want to leave it like that because it's not really all that encouraging to just hear the bad news. There's some good news coming. So I want to take us through a couple of key verses in the book and both of them are in chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible there, we're not going to be flipping all over the place, we're going to be sticking in chapter 1, verse 3. And then we're going to jump down to verse 7. So this is in the middle of the pronouncement of judgment. God says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So let's look at verse 3 first. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Actually, most of the rest of the book is Nahum telling Nineveh of the judgment and what's going to happen. He goes into great detail what the army is going to look like, what their uniforms are like, what their swords are like, what their chariots are like. He goes into all this great detail. Um, we don't need to necessarily go into all that now. It would have been really relevant to them because they would have seen the armies coming and they would have gone, oh, Nahum told us about that. These are some verses in the middle of all of that. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So the Lord is incredibly patient. If we look around this world and look at all the evil going on, Anyone want to throw out some evil that's happening in the world? Don't. There's the slaughter of the Uyghurs in China, the slaughter of babies in the womb, there's the brutality of Putin, there's the torture happening in North Korea, the injustice and slavery all over the world, the injustice and slavery that happens here in Australia. This is the Lord's world. He made it. 
He made us. Everything we see, touch, smell, and hear is here because of him, and it's all his. Yeah? And we live as rebels. We take his stuff, we live off his goodwill, we ignore his ways and his laws, and we refuse to bow our knee to the king who owns it all. And we actively encourage others to join us in our rebellion. So what's God going to do about it? Just ignore it? Someone comes into my house and starts, you know, takes over my bedroom and starts eating stuff out of my fridge and sets up a, a, um, a swing on the backyard and you know, just takes over all my stuff. I might put up with it for a little while, but how long do you reckon I'm going to stick around before I kind of do something about it? Well, that's what we're doing in God's world. We're living in his world, taking his stuff, living in his place, breathing his air, drinking his water, eating his food, living on the land that he provides, and we ignore him. Well, not happy. And rebels eventually receive the reward as rebels. There is a penalty for ignoring God. There is a penalty for sinning against him. There is a penalty for breaking his law. We don't want to hear that, but it's true. The penalty will be brought to bear on everything. But he is slow to anger, which I really, really like. I'm so grateful he's slow to anger. If he had come the second time when I was 20, I hadn't turned back to him then. I didn't know the Lord then. I was still in my sin and would have faced him guilty. So I'm glad that his anger held back until I was almost 21. If he displays his anger against rebels today and comes in judgment today, how many of us or how many of our friends or our relatives will escape his wrath against sin? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebelled against their God. We know the story. They wanted to be like him. They didn't really want to be ruled by him. They wanted to basically be him. But even after they, they had that rebellion and they spat in his face, he gave them opportunity and time to repent. Did you notice that the moment that they ate from the fruit, lightning didn't come? <laughs> Can anyone tell me what was the next thing that happened? They heard the Lord God walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. He came down. Adam, where are you? He gave them an opportunity to own up to what they'd done. He gave them an opportunity to seek his forgiveness. But what did they do? They turned their back and they hid. They heard him coming and they hid. They tried to hide. They tried to avoid him. They didn't want to look at his face. He was slow to anger. And even then, he didn't strike them down straight away. He sent them from the garden, so there was a massive, massive consequence for them and the rest of the world. But he didn't just kill them. He sent them from the garden he let them live and he gave them more time to come back. 
You know how in the Old Testament, as you're reading through in the book of Genesis, these guys seem to live a long time? I think that might be why. Lots of time for them to come back. God was slow to anger and he put up with their rebellion, their insurrection. He let them live and he gave them opportunity. You get to Genesis 6, um, chapter 6, verse 5. It says that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So after that first sin, it just got worse and worse. The next generation came along and added to the sin. The next generation added to the sin. Next generation added to the sin. And all just built up and built up and built up and built up. Until we get to the point where he says, every, in, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's not good. So we get to Noah. Peter, the Apostle Peter, says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah spent, just can anyone shout out from, from there? How long did Noah take to build the ark? 120 years. 120 years it took him and his sons to build the ark. God could have just and given him an ark, but he didn't. He wanted to use that as an op- to provide an opportunity for people to, to ask and to find out and to turn from their sin. 120 years. He provided a means of escape from the judgment. And as the ark was being built for 120 years, it was a physical reminder of God's coming judgment. What you building, Noah? An ark. Uh, what's an ark? Well, God has put up with your rebellion for a long time and he's going to bring judgment. Turn from your rebellion and join us on the ark. And no one turned. No one joined Noah, only his three sons and their wives. 120 years of mercy he gave. Actually, it's interesting, the warning came about 850 years before that. You heard of a guy called uh, Enoch? Um, had a little boy, had a little baby boy. And this little baby's boy name, uh, name was Methuselah. You heard of Methuselah? Anyone want to have a go at telling me what, what the name Methuselah is? All? What, what was he famous for? What was Methuselah famous for? He was a really old bloke. He lived longer than anyone had ever lived. Do you know what the name Methuselah means? It means when he is dead, it will come. So Methuselah, when he is dead, when this little baby leaves this planet, it's going to come. What's going to come? Judgment's going to come. God will bring judgment. He lived longer than anyone had ever lived. 969 years he lived. God kept this guy alive and provided as long as possible for sinners to repent and turn back to their king. He lived 969 years. It's amazing, but the year that Methuselah died, guess what happened? The flood came. The 969 years of mercy and grace in the name of this little baby who grew up to become a man. Then Noah, after 850 years, Noah starts building the ark. Another 120 years, the flood came. Methuselah dies, flood comes. The Lord kept Methuselah alive for as long as possible, longer than anybody, to give mercy. He gave Pharaoh of Egypt opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, warning after warning after warning, and then the darkness came. 
and the slayer came through and killed the firstborn. The Lord always brings warnings. All through the Old, old Covenant, all, the Old Testament, as you read through, there's always warnings before judgment, warnings before judgment, warnings before judgment. Opportunity after opportunity. He sends prophets, he sends preachers to warn and call the people back to their father, their king. He provided his words in this book. Opportunity after opportunity, he's not willing that any should perish. He's slow to anger. But his anger and his wrath does come, and it will come. Warning after warning came to Nineveh, about a hundred years of it. And judgment came, because they didn't turn. And it says, and he's great in power. He's not worried about missing the opportunity. God, God's not in a hurry to do stuff. Um, He's not worried about missing the opportunity to exercise his judgment. He can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. He's not weak. He's not unable to subdue the rebels. In a second, he could take out the world. His great power allows him to do things in his own time. It's us that need to be worried about running out of time. Have we recognised our rebellion and our sin? If we had been at the time of Methuselah, the time of Noah, what would we have done? Would we have run to the ark? Don't know. Well, unless we have unlimited power and have the, unbi- the ability to fight off the king of the universe, we beg it on our knees and turn to him. Because one day, his incredible patience will come to an end and one day he will say to us, enough! And judgment is going to come. It's going to happen either way. I'd love to be able to say nicer stuff than that, but it's going to happen. Um, either when we die or when he returns. Either way, the day is going to come. And it says, he will by no means clear the guilty. And we're all guilty. What's the first commandment or the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Have we done that? Even today, I'm preaching. And today, I didn't do that. Guilty today, the day I'm here talking about it. The second commandment, love your neighbour as you love yourself. How are we going? No, guilty. So no one gets off. We're all guilty. So if he will by no means clear the guilty, where does that leave us? It says that no sin, no guilt ever escaped being punished or will ever escape being punished. So, we either pay the penalty ourselves, enduring the just wrath of God forever in hell, or the Saviour Jesus pays the penalty for us, enduring the wrath of God for us. We pay it ourselves, or he pays it for us. That's all there is. There's no other choices. We keep our back to the Lord and keep hiding our face from him, rejecting him, rejecting his love and mercy and grace, or we turn. We admit our rebellion, we admit our sin, we turn from it and we turn to him. It really is that simple. It really is. We throw ourselves upon his mercy and we trust him to be good and faithful and rescue us from our rebellion and our sin. And this book tells us that that's what he's doing, that's what he's done, and that's the, that's the only way out. So we paid ourselves, or Jesus pays it for us. I'm going with option two.
So the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Let's go to verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good. Everything about him is good. And because he's good, we've been talking about God's wrath and all of that stuff. Because he's good, he has a very clear understanding of what is not good. And he fights against it. He hates the evil that happens in the world. He judges all that is not good. And he punishes it and he does it, does away with it. Well, that's not very nice and kind and loving. And what about Jesus, meek and mild? Um, well, would a good judge allow a murderer to go free? And there's all that stuff in the last few weeks. You read that stuff about the guy in the Lamborghini out on a joyride and hit that girl and killed her? Absolute outrage that this guy didn't receive justice. Well, under our law courts, he actually... They sentenced, but he didn't actually end up with any jail time. Absolute outrage. How dare that guy get out? He killed our daughter. How dare he get away with it? How dare he get away with it? Hitler, all the atrocities that he was involved in, he caused. We think he killed himself. Oh, it didn't seem fair. Like he should have been brought to justice. We wanted justice. We want justice for these things. Well, a good judge brings justice. A good king wouldn't allow Hitler or Stalin or a rapist or a murderer to go free. No, he's good and he does what's right and he brings justice, proper, just justice. Because he's good. That's what a good king would do. Fair and right justice. And it says, and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. A stronghold, a refuge. Different translations have, it's an interesting word. It kind of means a place of safety a place to hide, a refuge, a stronghold. So when judgment comes, when the king comes to confront us, do we hide in the bushes? Do we try to cover our sin with fig leaves? Or do we run to him, run to the stronghold and hide ourselves in him? It doesn't just provide a stronghold. He is the stronghold. Does that make sense? He doesn't just provide a nice, safe place. He is the nice, safe place. It's him we run to. We can't hide. We really can't hide. There's no point in ignoring the reality of the judgment and covering over our sin or denying our guilt. Much better. Face the verdict. Run and hide. The only place we can run and hide, which is him. We cover ourselves in his righteousness and shelter ourselves in his mercy in his grace. Let him cover us. Let him hide us. No need to hide in the bushes. He wants to hide us in him. So he's the one who brings the guilty verdict and he's also the one who provides the way of escape through his own body nailed to the cross. And he's the only one that can provide that for us. So let's take shelter in him, yeah? And lastly... He knows those who take refuge in him. If you've taken refuge in the Lord, he knows you. That's great. Jesus in John 10, can we get that up? I think it's the next one. John 10, uh, Izzy read uh, that earlier for us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice 
and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If we trust in him, if we run to him for refuge, we've done it because we've heard his voice and we've responded in faith. Now, not an audible voice. I don't know if anyone here has actually heard an audible voice. When I was 20, someone read from here. And the girl who read the words of the Bible, her voice, I heard, speak his, his voice. And that's what brought me to faith. I heard him speak through her voice as she was reading the scriptures. So we're not looking for an audible voice. We hear, we've heard the voice of God through his word or through other Christians sharing the message of the cross and we've responded. We've believed what we've heard and we've reached out with empty hands and called on him to save us. That's what Jesus is talking about. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. We've heard the bad news of our sin and rebellion and judgment to come and we've heard the good news of the Saviour Jesus who came to take our place and bear the wrath of God on our behalf. Fantastic. He knows you if you've called out to him. You know, people talk about, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Have you heard anyone say that to you? It's a bit of a hard one, isn't it? What does that mean? Do you know Jesus? Well, yeah, I talk to Jesus and... I read his word and I know a lot about him. And, but do I know him? Do I, I'm not always sure what that means. I think it means different things to different people. And do, do you know him better than I know him? It's a bit of a tricky one. But this says God knows us. It's the flip side of the whole thing. A brand new baby. Does the brand new baby, does Shiloh know you, Matt? Well, I don't know. Just how old is she? Six weeks old? She might know you, but you know her. And you are looking after her. You are her hiding place. You and Abby and Elsie. And when she's able to run, she'll run to you. She doesn't necessarily know you all that much, but, she, but you know her. That's what this is saying. And that's much better. She's much safer because you know her. Well, he knows, he knows you. and he, It's not just that he knows about us. He knows us. He takes us into his family, he adopts us, he adopts us. He brings us into his house and he shares his life with us. He pours out his spirit into our lives, he regenerates our hearts, he gives us life, full life, a full life that goes on forever. He knows us. And as time goes on, we begin to know him more and more. I hope Shiloh, as she grows up, gets to know you more and more. I know that my kids got to know me more and more as they grew up. Not necessarily the best thing, Adam, but they, know, they got to know me as, as they grow. We get to know him more, about, more and more. We learn more about him. We experience more about him. We go to love him and appreciate all he is and all he's done for us. And most importantly, he knows us. So even when I turn my back, if I've already called out in faith to him, there are times that I turn my back. He knows me and he keeps me safe. We can go hours and days and weeks and months and not really think about him. But he doesn't go a second without thinking about us. Our ways are always before him. He knows our going out and our coming in. 
He knows us. He knows our thoughts, our concerns, our worries, our joys, our sadnesses. He knows us. And he loves us more than we could ever imagine. And that stronghold, that fortress, that refuge, he holds us there. And we are safe forever. My kids are always my kids because I've chosen to have them as my kids. If you're a child of God, you are always a child of God because he's chosen to hold you safe. And Jesus said, no one can snatch you out. And the Father can't snatch you out. You're not going anywhere. You're safe. Nothing can touch us. Nothing can drag us away. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. There's that power thing again. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The eternal Son of God who gave his life to save sinners like me has hold of all of those who have fled to him. The eternal almighty Father, the King of the universe, has hold of us. No one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. You may have noticed that I, I keep calling God the King of the universe. Have you noticed me saying that through the message, hopefully? You know why? Because he is the King of the universe. But to just quickly bring us back to the book of Nahum, the king of Assyria, at the time of Nineveh, at the time of Nahum, do you know what he called himself? The king of the universe. Here's a quote. I'm not going to get his name right. I think it's Ashurbanipal. This is a quote. I, Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, king of the universe. It's actually in a, um, in a they call it a steel, like a, some writing, where he's bragging about his lion hunts. Um, Assyria's symbol was the lion, which I thought was kind of interesting. Alison, one of the songs that you did this morning was the Lion of Judah. I thought it was kind of interesting. I didn't tell Alison that that's what we were doing. But that was the symbol for the king of Assyria, was the lion. He used to be, uh, pride himself on going out and, and slaying lions. Um, but he's not, the, he's not the lion. He's not the king of the universe. Sorry, mate, you had great power, you had great wealth, you controlled the lives of hundreds of thousands of men and women, but you were not the king of the universe. And the true king warned you and warned you and warned you. He sent prophets to call you to repentance, but you refused. You could have been like your great, 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 great grandpa, who I don't know how to pronounce his name either, Tiglath Pileser, I think. Ashurbanipal could have been like his great-great-great-great-grandpa and fallen down and repented and turned. But Ashurbanipal, you chose to push him out of the way and take the throne for yourself. Well, there's only one king of the universe and you're not him. The Lord who is slow to anger and great in power, the Lord who will by no means clear the guilty, the Lord who is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble, he's the Lord who knows those who take refuge in him. That's a good place to finish. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, we are grateful for your words. Lord, even though there is so much, so many words of your judgment
and wrath against sin, Lord, you're also the God who's taken care of that. And for all that will bow down and all that will turn from, from themselves as king of the, their own universe and turn to you as king, you're graceful and merciful and you will rescue <clears throat> and you will save and you'll keep safe all of those who cry out to you. So Lord, um, keep us from being like Ashurbanipal and help us to be more like Tiglath who bowed down and turned and you rescued. So Lord, we thank you for your great grace and your great mercy. Thank you for bringing your words to us through Nahum. Lord, uh, make us faithful people that will continue to love and serve you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.